0: You're listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for joining. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host, Diana Asatran. Today is December 20th, and it's our last episode of the year, so we've made sure to make it a good one. First off, we have Al Yoon, associate editor and RMBS reporter at Detwire ABS. Al, what's on your mind?
1: Hi. Well, I'm going to be talking about uh, the credit risk uh, transfer bond market uh, with Mark Fontanella, who is uh, he's the founder of the CRTX indexes and uh, actually in unique position to see uh, not just the forest of CRT bonds, but all the trees within. So that's why I think it'd be interesting to get his views on on this sector, just uh, you know, looking ahead to 2020 as well as a look back of the, the past year, which has been a good one for the market, generally speaking.
0: Great. Thanks so much. Next, we have Larissa Patton, Auto ABS and Esoteric Assets Reporter at Deathwire ABS. Larissa, what's on your mind?
2: Hi, Deanna. I'm going to give a little snapshot of the subprime auto sector, how it's shaping up, headed towards year end, and expectations for 2020. Thank you.
0: And finally, I'll touch on the marketplace lending space, as well as provide a brief update on the developments of the blockchain technology and securitization sector. To help me with that, uh, we have John Mezzi, Chief Strategy Officer at Bond One. Hi John, thanks so much for joining. And now we will start with Al.
1: Okay, great. Well, uh, welcome Mark, and uh, I think this is the first time that you've been on the podcast and uh, hopefully there'll be many more times to come. Um, very interested in this uh, credit risk transfer market, uh, aka CRT market, because it has become uh, sort of the de facto non-agency bond market uh, of sorts uh, with, uh, well, I was going to say little issuance outside of that, but I mean, the issuance outside of CRT are certainly growing. But uh, still, it's uh, you know, obviously probably the most liquid market in uh, the non-agencies, non-agency markets. Anyway, Mark, well, well welcome. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the CRTX indexes just to start off with, please.
3: Sure, thank you, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me on today. And uh, the CRTX index is a total return index based on the benchmark CRT bonds that are issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Max, Cass and Stacker Shells, respectively. So this represents the, the beginnings of the CRT market when it was originated back in 2013 and still represents the bulk of issuance today. So the issuance out of the GSEs account for probably about 80% of the CRT market today as far as issuance goes. And from an index standpoint, again, it's a total return um, broad market benchmark index. And right now the index has about 55 billion in bonds uh, as far as constituents are concerned. So the total market value represented is about 55 billion. Uh, and again, only covers the benchmark issues. So if we look at the returns uh, at the end of 2018, index returns were at 2.79% for the year, uh, which was actually one of the, is across all financial markets. Remember we had a fourth quarter Um, decline across almost all segments across the financial markets. So far for 2019, uh, the index shows returns above 6%, and assuming nothing happens in the last week, uh, I think we'll end up again above 6% overall for the entire CRT benchmark CRT market based on index returns. Um, So the index is broken down to different constituent pieces and different sub-indexes, so we can take a look at different segments within that, and we'll probably go over a number of those different segments today. Uh, But anyway, that's the index in a nutshell.
1: Sure. Well, you you mentioned uh, returns that are uh, over 6% for the CRT market, but that really doesn't tell the story uh, at all. When I'm looking at uh, your your latest uh, CRTX daily returns, um, just the segments are kind of all over the place, weren't they?
3: Yes, and if I could characterize 2018, Um, In one word, it would be divergence, so that 6% represents a a cross-interest sector that represented represented a divergence in the return profile across different uh, segments. So in a nutshell, uh, the more seasoned segments, in other words, uh, the older bonds from 2015 and 2016, particularly the middle of the capital structure, the M2s and the older M3s is where a lot of that, uh, the underperformance happened um, and we saw that happen in the beginning of the year and then kind of carrying through to the middle of the year as far as uh, we even had some negative returns during some months for 2015 and 2016 deal vintage uh, M2s and M3s. And part of that, actually a lot of that was because of the convexity profile when prepayment speeds picked up a little bit and the high premiums that those bonds had started to pay down. In other words, their principal payment window started to open up. And then accelerate uh, the premium give back of those high price bonds. And those bonds were anywhere from 113 to $115 handles. When they started to pay principal back, you started to see anywhere between 10 to 15 basis points just in the pay down loss each month. So that accounted for the underperformance and the market value decline.
1: Uh, that was sort of a surprise to a lot of investors, wasn't it? I mean, because people, people, a lot of people held those uh, high premium season bonds.
3: Yes, I think the market didn't really adjust as far as market prices and market uh, spreads until probably the end of the, the first quarter heading into the second quarter. Uh, but this uh, paydown phenomena was occurring uh, into the uh, beginning of last year. So it took a, a little bit for the market to catch up as far as market pricing goes um, to catch up with the paydown uh, effect that was happening uh, you know, at the end of last year.
1: Okay. I mean, that, I just bring that up uh, because I think that was one of the, you know, the bigger stories about, uh, you know, being in the CRT market. Um, you know, it just wasn't sort of a slam dunk investment uh, just because of these uh, prepayments. And when you say that prepayments sped up a little bit, I mean, they actually sped up a lot towards the end of the year, didn't they?
3: Uh, yes, yes. With the rallying rates, um You know, in the second half of the year, the pregame speeds did pick up significantly, and they're still uh, elevated today.
1: Okay. Um, Just to sort of uh, skip ahead, because uh, we're running out of time, I think, Um, uh, tell me what you think investors should be looking for into 2020.
3: Into 2020, I think, uh, as opposed to 2019, where I think it was a year of volatility and divergence, I think 2020, uh, we probably will revert back to a little bit more stability, um, as far as where things are priced. I think a lot of the market is priced uh, close to fair value, and so you're subject more to, uh, we'll call it beta risk, Um, you know, just overall movement and spreads, as opposed to idiosyncratic to any specific part of the market. And so I think uh, to look forward to, um, I think we'll have a little bit of pressure um, to the upside as far as spreads are concerned, uh, depending on how supply works, depending on how other peripheral markets uh, go about, you know, their kind of uh, gyrations as well. Um, because the market is, going, is relatively at fair value right now in spreads and the credit curve is at all-time lows and tights, uh, I think that the bias is maybe there's going to be a little bit of upside for spreads um, but not much, I think it'll be stable, partly because the credit is, again, very stable. If you look at the mortgage delinquency numbers across um, deals, they're very, very good, very, very stable, and this is kind of counter to some of the consumer sectors, which are seeing upticks in delinquencies, but you haven't seen it in the mortgage sector, so I think the borrower base, um, the fundamental credit profile, the underwriting characteristics are all, have been very good, and I think that'll carry it through to next year, so the credit's gonna be stable, and the supply demand, I think, will also be relatively stable, which, uh, again, but the, given that spreads have been compressed to all-time lows, all-time tights, and the credit curve is relatively flat, uh, I think, you know, the bias is for it to, you know, bias a little bit higher to stable.
1: Okay. By higher, you mean wider spreads, right?
3: yes correct
1: yeah I mean I think that's what I've been hearing elsewhere as well I mean I've uh, recently interviewed uh, managers from T row price and Loomis sales and uh, you know they like the CRT market uh, uh, very much but uh, they're not telling me that they're they're adding in any significant way uh, just because of where where spreads are they're, they're they're pretty tight right now in our conversation yesterday uh, off offline mark uh, you were mentioning that uh, you know you know, you could also discuss uh, sector risk divergence. Uh, you did discuss, you did tell me what happened this year in terms of those uh, season, high, high, uh, season high WAC premium and high premium bonds. But what do you think is going to happen next year? I mean, basically, you already painted a picture that was uh, pretty benign in terms of credit risk. But uh, what parts of the CRT market are likely to outperform and what are likely to underperform?
3: I think as far as outperformance goes, uh, I actually why don't I go into underperformance, I think heading into next year, uh, there may be some, um, some underperformance possibilities in the more seasoned uh, B pieces, uh, we've already seen some, uh, some declines or actually you know, some underperformance in uh, let's say 2015 and 2016 um, B pieces and, and those have the highest premiums in the sector. They trade anywhere between $120 and $130 handles and they're close to the first loss piece, or in some cases they are the first loss piece. And so that uh, sets you up for, um, you know, you can't get any better than the credit has been, necessarily, uh, but you can get worse. So that asymmetric bias towards credit worsening, um, you know, puts those bonds, especially at the high 120 $130 handle premiums, puts them at risk, and I think that'll be something that'll continue to emerge next year. Um, As far as the rest of the stack, or the rest of the complex goes, I think uh, the one thing that may pop up is the 2017 uh, M2s, because just like the 2015 and 2016 vintages, once their prepayment windows, or their principal payment windows opened up, they start to see the, uh, the negative effect of paydowns because of their premiums, and you might see the 2017s as they approach, let's say, 12 months or inside of 12 months to start opening up their payment windows, they might see some of that effect as well. So on a relative basis, um, newer issues relative to the 2017 issue, um, you know, that might be a, a case of divergence in performance there as well. So in a nutshell, uh, season subs and 2017 uh, M2s uh, maybe um, you know may have underperformed going into next year.
1: Okay, and um, you mentioned the risk for uh, season B pieces. Uh, uh, you know, you say that uh, credit isn't likely to get better. That said, I mean, most people seem to have a pretty uh, you know bullish or positive view on on the housing market. Correct?
3: Yes, yes, that's uh, pretty much across the board.
1: Okay okay uh well i think we'll move on here with the podcast but uh thank you very much for for joining us mark
0: thank you uh Larissa, can we talk uh, subprime auto now please
2: sure um the subprime auto sector is expected to be as robust if not a little more robust in 2020 uh, according to data from Kroll, auto-related ABS issuance is a little over 122 billion so far this year, and that's expected to grow to about 125 billion in 2020. Those numbers do encompass all auto ABS, including prime, non-prime, floor plan, etc. And non-prime volumes are actually down 9.9.4% year over year. That doesn't seem to be phasing investors in the space, though. Uh, several sources expect issuance to be strong investor interest in the space is expected to remain strong. This is due to a number of favorable economic factors, which I will be putting into a 2020 outlook next week. So keep an eye out for that online. Um, you know, since the end of the second quarter, one and a half year AAA A subprime auto spreads have tightened in about 15 to 20 basis points. Two and a half year triple B subprime auto spreads have tightened in around 25 basis points. No one that I've spoken to is expecting any major widening in the space going into next year, or at least not anytime soon. In fact, the only sector that's been mentioned to me that may see some widening in 2020 is marketplace lending. And actually, Deanna, maybe you can shed some light on why that might be.
0: For sure, but let's stick with um, subprime model for a sec. So you said that you know, there's been tightening uh, on the secondary. Um, how about like trade volumes? Our investors are kind of still active on the secondary for this space.
2: Sure, that tightening was kind of overall primary, not mm-hmm. secondary specific. Uh, yeah, heading into the end of the year, it's typically quiet. It hasn't been said to me that it's busier trading, trading in the secondary this year, but it is active and uh, expecting to be active through the end of the year.
0: Got it. How about uh, any of the issuers? Has anybody been pointed out to you in terms of performance or is everyone kind of on the same page with that?
2: No issuer has been uh, pointed out to me specifically. Uh, There has, I believe, only been one deal in the primary market in December that's been issued. I don't know if anyone's expected to come to market before the end of the year, and that's kind of feeding that volume in the secondary. Investors typically focus on the primary market, and they've been putting in a little more attention into the secondary because there is a lack of issuance in the primary.
1: The one thing that always fascinates me about subprime auto is uh, when you look at just the, the loan market and the securitizations of subprime auto loans, can be can be completely different sometimes Mm -hmm. i mean you know we all know that riskier auto loans are being made Mm -hmm. yes yet yes the the sector the subprime auto abs sector keeps tightening and of course people always point to the structure but uh, i always ask people well okay well how long are you going to be relying on the structure if they're going to make worse and worse loans right now it's okay i suppose.
2: Yes, and the issuers do tend to issue the best of the bunch. So it it is Mm -hmm. not a snapshot of the overall industry, and you do see losses kind of tick up a little bit. Delinquencies have ticked up. 60-day delinquencies are up 18 basis points about year over year, but it is the smallest annualized increase since 2015. So I think as long as credit quality in the issuance stays as expected, that investors will remain interested. Right,
1: and in the big picture, a lot of people point out to me, of course, uh, low unemployment. Yes, uh, the economy Interest is doing all right, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And so these things are big supporters to subprime auto performance as well as mortgage performance and everything really that we're yes. talking about.
2: Yeah, everything, especially in subprime auto, is tied to the health of the consumer, and right now they're pretty healthy.
0: Are there ever any new entrants in your space?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I think that's... uh, No one has been mentioned by name to me is expected to come to market, but you do see... There were a few first-time issuers in 2019, probably will be in 2020. There are a lot of new people that are um, originating uh, subprime auto loans that weren't originating before. They're expected maybe not to come to market in 2020, but down the line. So, yeah, there are new players.
0: Sorry, last question. And is that like startups in the space or is that kind of uh, people that have been like financing other assets and are getting into auto loans like what are what what kind of companies are you seeing a little come from in?
2: column a a little from column b mm-hmm. uh there are some existing lenders in your space that are looking at and targeting subprime auto there are um you know some unsecured originators that have been looking at auto for a very long time so it's only a matter of time uh so we'll see interesting
0: all right thank you Right, I think I'll pick up on um, Larissa's point about marketplace lending being the only sector that's expected to widen out. Um, that's I guess overwhelmingly everybody agrees on that. And investors have been telling us that they're actually watching this uh, the spread performance in this sector for signs of an overall slowdown in the ABS markets. And many bond buyers are expected to step back or at least be a little more picky with the kinds of notes they buy and the kinds of issuers they choose to partner with. And other investors have started asking for a little more compensation for the risk they're taking. And you can see that in some of the more recent ABS structures, um, you have your fatter C nodes, uh, fatter residual pieces, and D nodes have uh, practically disappeared from the market. Whereas last year, you'd see like a, you know, a little sliver of a D note. Right now, they're all mushed together to make up for like a little more, um, a little more return, a little more protection for investors. And now we've all heard that consumers are on solid ground and ABS deals have performed well in the space. Delinquencies are on the rise, but nothing that's off charts yet. So why are investors still concerned? Well, it seems like it all goes back to the untested nature of the space and the fact that these nodes are, well, unsecured, so they're very quick to react to any signs of consumer weakness. And, you know, people talk about low unemployment rates, etc. but there's actually been some recent research issued about especially lower income, lower credit score borrowers and that have already began exhibiting signs of weakness, and they're overwhelmed with all the debt that they've taken, and you know, they're having trouble paying it off, basically. You know, but most lenders are tightening credit to Potentially offset this risk. I think Lending Club is a good example of that. They've actually gotten rid of several of their low risk grades altogether and don't issue in that space anymore. In terms of the ABS uh, volume, it's still expected to grow next year. But I guess the interesting thing here is that uh, sources say the growth wouldn't necessarily be driven by your traditional issuers because those have gravitated towards pass-through securitizations and other bespoke transactions, again, to give investors a little more yield, a little more protections. And the new, the increasing volume is actually going to be driven by new issuers in the space, and we have reported about several of them that are expected to come to market uh, next year you know many of them are in the point of sales space but i in addition to your you know regular personal loan um, lenders you have uh, 2020 is actually shaping up to be the year of blockchain abs uh, we have figure that has uh, lined up two um, potential abs deals early in 2020 after pushing its first heloc rmbs from third quarter of this year uh, to the first quarter of next year, and we have Cadence that has entered the whole business um, ABS space as well as the solar sector, and we're hearing that a company called Cred might be eyeing uh, a securitization soon. And John, could you uh, first uh, give us a quick introduction of Bond One, and then we can talk about a few trends for about a few trends in blockchain securitization specifically?
4: Yes, of course. Uh, so Bond One is an administrative uh, platform to support the activities of trustees, transfer agents, uh, issuers and administrators within the uh, debt capital market space. We have built out solutions that facilitate the settlement and reconciliation of cash transactions. Um, so uh, automating certain different reconciliation activities across these various interpart, uh, I'm sorry intermediaries um, in the ABS sector.
0: Got it. And when we're talking about, uh, I guess, uh, blockchain has, has been kind of the talk of town for a while in both marketplace lending sector and just overall securitization sector. Everybody's expecting this big kind of change that the technology will bring to the, um, to the securitizations. But can you tell me what are some of the actual major developments that you've seen this year in terms of uh, the technologies used in ABS?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a rationalization, right? So you, maybe two years ago, heard everyone talking about tokenization and being able to really transform the securitization space when you securitize the underlying, extremely easier uh, or much easier to um, actually be able to uh, then package up these underlying um, you know, loans into securitized instruments. I think the reality is that legacy infrastructure and just the current market environment not have the appetite to uh, introduce these, these securitization or tokenization platforms overnight. So what we've observed, and really where we're trying to position ourselves, is as an enterprise technology solution that, that uses blockchain more so as a infrastructure to support better connectivity and reporting through the entire securitization value chain but instead of tokenizing the actual instruments um, from a legal perspective, um, what we're enabling or what really what blockchain and different technology systems that have been introduced into the securitization space are enabling is more uh, standardization of data and the seamless connectivity across um, you know, everyone from issuer, trustee, administrative agent, and ultimately providing more transparency for investors.
0: It's interesting that the market conversation kind of shifted to kind of this is a back-end technology that this just makes everything easier for you rather than something that will revolutionize ABS issuance altogether. But I'm, I'm curious. So what do, you, what do you think are some of the asset classes that are uh, most suited, I guess, for securitization? You know, aside from HELOCs, I guess, because uh, FIGURE is already lining up that deal, but what are some of the other asset classes you're seeing um, being securitized or about to be securitized?
4: Yeah, um, I mean, we are, uh, I guess we're most focused on the mortgage space, frankly, um, just because we see the uh, most significant opportunity to introduce impactful change. And given the legacy infrastructure that does exist in that space, um, I think you see a lot of mortgage servicing organizations who are um, keen to upgrade their systems. Um, Now, the other side of that is is there is a a lot of legacy infrastructure that exists within the mortgage market, Um, so while they're some of the largest in securitization, among securitization sectors, um, I think there will also be, um, it'll be the most sophisticated um, build out in order to really deliver a value add solution. Um, another sector that we uh, observed a lot of activity in is the marketplace lending space. Um, naturally, as marketplace lenders are some of the most technology-enabled among um, ABS issuers, um, there is a natural proclivity to uh, think about technology solutions that can introduce efficiency. Um, so, from a you know. Collateral management perspective. Um, I think that's where you know our uh, distributed ledger technology provides some of the most value, um, where you can provide look-through transparency into how the underlying assets are performing that are being packaged up in securitization. Um, and so, if you know, on one side you have you know marketplace lenders where they are some of the more most uh, digitally enabled, on the other mortgage servicers who are maybe you know less less tech savvy. If you're thinking about uh, you know the industry in total. Um, however, there are individual players in the servicer space who are keen to uh, really you know, look at or explore how technology can transform their, their business operations.
0: Very interesting. So from where you're standing, what are some of the companies or um, any of the uh, either issuers or investment banks that are working with issuers? Like, Who are you watching in 2020?
4: Um, So, I mean, we are observing, actually, interestingly enough, um, a a handful of different trustees who are very excited about the potential of what um, technology can do to uh, support their businesses. Um, So the trustees on the the, uh, ABS instruments are in a place where they're naturally um, margin compressed. As a servicer, they're not necessarily... Uh, you know, there, there's an operational burden there and the lack of standardization and reporting that exists mm-hmm. um, historically has forced their organizations to, you know, operate with a, uh, almost a manual operating model where they're uh, constantly throwing extra headcount as their businesses are growing. Um, so they're looking at scalability solutions, and they see the potential for um, DLP that's introducing more standardization of reporting as a, you know, potential uh, transformation vehicle.
0: I see. Interesting. And um, I think we also wanted kind of to touch on the esoterics uh, ABS space, um, meaning that um, there has been, Cadence has um, said that they're issuing a deal with Fat Fat Burgers. Um, the whole business securitization deal, and they've also been in the solar space um, a lot. How are you thinking the, these, this technology? I guess for either these sectors or any other of the asset classes uh, will benefit will benefit them because we talk a lot about cost cost cutting and you know saving money basically. But um, talking to investors right now, a mm-hmm. lot of them are saying that that's not really happening at this point in time because this is still being tested.
4: Yeah, you know, it's, it's an uh, interesting question there, Deanna. Um, so the esoteric space is exciting for us because it is, you know, much more of a greenfield opportunity relative to some of the more mature um, ABS sectors. And so where you have a greenfield opportunity, there is a lower barriers to entry when you're introducing a newer, innovative technology. Um, now, the other side of that is that esoterics are naturally or uh, inherently less scalable. So, if you're thinking about introducing a technology platform that's going to support the scaling of a business, um, the nature of esoterics is that there's a lot of nuance that doesn't translate across different esoteric subsectors. Um, so, I think you know there's there's kind of two sides to that. Uh, but with, with that being said, there are um, I, the way that. DLT platforms are being introduced in the way that any you know, kind of enterprise software within the securitization space that we've observed, is uh, the, the benefit it provides is that um, you know, cloud-based technologies that are being designed to be much more flexible um, are more easily implemented and, and then deployed uh, for these types of issuers to provide the reporting they need which covers um, or provides a a transparency benefit and ultimately provides the reporting that investors might need to attract new capital um, into these esoteric sectors. So I think ultimately uh, there's going to be capital that, uh, or there will be more investors that are attracted to the esoteric space as a result of some of these um, cadence-type announcements. Um, and given that Cadence is, you know, technology enabled, there is probably a benefit relative to some of the old esoteric or the, the you know, prior or legacy esoteric issuers. Um, in that Cadence can provide those investors with um, you know, the, the kind of level of reporting that they might um, require. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, as different solutions are deployed, um, if it's really a change maker for firms like Cadence.
0: No, absolutely. All right. Um, Well, thank you so much. I think uh, we've uh, run out of time here, but um, appreciate everybody being here. Thank you, uh, Mark and John and Larissa, Al, and our producer, Anthony, for making this episode possible. And I'll see you all next year. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share and comment and join us for our next episode soon.